Hello, welcome to the Musics in Japan. A conversational podcast about daily life for an American couple living long-term in Japan. So lately I've been thinking about property ownership and the security that it creates, but also the process of, because we've purchased property in the United States and purchased property in Japan. And I feel like the process was really different for both. Yes, it was. So for me, the biggest difference, because I think you, I know for a fact you dealt with the money stuff. I didn't. Right. So for me, the biggest difference was how many pieces of property we looked at and how we looked for looked at property and how long it took. I feel like the United States, it took way longer. It did take way longer. I'm not sure that wasn't down to just luck, though. What do you mean? I mean, maybe we just looked where... We're lucky to find a place we liked in Japan quicker than we found one we liked in the U.S. How so? I'm not. I'm not seeing luck at all. You're not familiar with the concept of luck, or you're just not. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the concept of luck in this context. I'm not understanding. Are you saying because when we started looking in the United States, they took us literally to a crack den the first time? Like the real estate agent didn't know it had been. Because it had been standing empty. It was in a decent neighborhood. It had been standing empty for, I think, like six months. Right. And it had been like somebody was squatting there. And the person who was squatting there or people were smoking crack. Because there was like all kinds of crack paraphernalia and stuff. Like it was a two-story and we walked in. And the first story was just trash. The first floor was just trash. And the real estate agent was like, do you want to go upstairs? And I was like, No. I don't need to see upstairs with this cracked in. You no, out it, your mind. It may have been raccoons. <laughs> yes, she did say she thought it was raccoons. <laughs> Bless her heart, but she was not the brightest the brightest bulb in, in any respect, in any stretch of the imagination. She was she was a bit dim. See, I think she was just really trying to sell some property. And she wasn't sure anything else would be any better. Yeah, because the house that we ended up buying wasn't actually in that much better of condition, except it was being lived in at the time. Correct. Right. And so we ended up having to rebuild the house. So, yeah, when we bought the house, it had a room over the garage, which we found out wasn't permitted. So we couldn't actually use that. We had to rebuild the garage. But we also didn't get the keys. (laughs) <laughs> yes yes so they were like they sent us a note you know uh i forget how because it wasn't email i think it was like through the realtor the keys are on the kitchen counter yes <laughs> this is not particularly helpful no when the keys are on the keys to open the door to get to the kitchen counter are on the kitchen counter yeah luckily you know you being black and all <laughs> no, wait, I have to tell this side of it. Because okay, you tell this side of it. I don't want I don't want you to get lit up. So okay. me and another girlfriend of mine who's also black, a friend of ours, we both were always touting our ghetto cred. And so we were saying that because we're black and we have ghetto experience, that you being so, like, you're one of the whitest people on the face of the earth. And, you, like, to just look at you, if someone were to just meet you they would think you grew up pristine mm-hmm. with like because 
our friend was always saying you grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth. I wasn't, which drove you nuts. But we thought that, okay, because I got street cred because I'm ghetto, which has nothing to do with being black. But I felt like I'm ghetto. I got street cred. I'm going to handle this. Well, the other person was always saying that it did. And I said, you're white, so you don't have street cred. Yeah, so she was always saying her blackness gave her street cred, which... I don't know why she was always saying that, because she grew up middle class. She, like, didn't have any... Yeah, I hung out with her mom. Like, it was... Yeah, like... she yeah, she was the one that was more silver spoon in the mouth than either of us were. And I don't feel that my blackness has anything to do with my ghetto fabulousness. I felt ghetto fabulous at the time that you met me, because I had been raised in the foster care system. I had emancipated at 16, and I was living in the ghetto. Right. Like, in the ghetto of, of San Jose. But San, the San Jose ghetto is not hardcore. They're like gangs and stuff, but it's not... I don't know. Back then... I don't know how it is now. Well, but I think back that, then, it was pretty, like, gang-light. I think that word is always political. I mean, you look back at the at the Jewish ghettos, which is where it came from. And I know you're also Jewish. Yeah. And then it came to be applied to primarily black neighborhoods. So I think when people say the ghetto, it usually doesn't have any particular meaning. Yeah, and so our friend always made, like, ghetto synonymous with being black, but that had to do with her self-loathing. Mm-hmm. And she really struggled with her blackness. I don't struggle with mine. I felt like my ghetto fabulous street cred came from more from the foster care system and living on my own since I was 16 and the fact that I lived in the actual ghetto. Um, and there was, like... So it's interesting because my street is, like, was at the very beginning of the, where the ghetto started. And there weren't any, like, stabbings or shootings or anything on my street. But the next street over, there was usually, I don't know, like, once a month there'd be a stabbing or some sort of violence. But I always felt really safe. There were a couple times that, like, the street was closed off because they were searching for somebody who had, you know, shot somebody or stabbed somebody and I couldn't get home. <laughs> But for the most part, I always felt safe. I never felt, like, afraid. I would walk the streets at night and stuff by myself. Well, I was never afraid in your neighborhood, but your neighborhood had a lower police presence. You were, like, on the edge of the police presence. Yeah. So, you know, two blocks away, if they they there was an anti-cruising regulation, so if they saw you driving past, you get a ticket. There was, like, really heavy police monitoring. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that what's perceived as a dangerous neighborhood or not is usually completely wrong. Um, yeah. So, but that's that's beside the point. The, yes, we the, digress again. <laughs> <laughs> Digressing. Oh, you want to get as back to tout yourself. Yes, thank you. Okay, sorry. Sorry, back to touting Chad. <clears throat> Go ahead, tout away, babe. Well, everybody else, by which I mean the other two people... <laughs> Wanted to look at the house. We knew that it wasn't ready to move into because there were several problems that had been identified during the inspection and, and such. Yeah. But we wanted to get the keys in particular. And so we look in through the front window and we could see the keys are on the counter in the kitchen, but yeah. the door is locked. Yeah. So Christopher and our friend are standing around going, well, what should we do? Like, do we call a locksmith or... Would it be cheaper to smash a window and climb through? <laughs> Mind you, none of us were of the size to be wanting to climb through a broken window. Yeah. And I just walked around to the back where there was a sliding glass door. 
um, lifted it off its hinges and opened it up and walked in. Um, both of I them. I didn't know you could do that with the sliding door. Yeah, it was it was interesting. You didn't know that. Well, because in the ghetto we don't have we don't have the whole portrait stained glass sliding doors. Although oh. in one of the group homes I lived in, both because it was a, in a duplex that had been converted to a single home, like the wall had been broke down. Both of those had sliding doors, but I never had to break in to the group home because they never locked the door. Yeah, I mean, when I was living in a trailer in somebody else's backyard, we had like a big glass door. <laughs> and then the other time that I was living in a cabin that literally had a wood stove in it and there was an abandoned school bus in the backyard. Okay, you total grew up big poor. <laughs> You grew up. Poor. I know you grew up poor, <laughs> but these are like when we were when we were first together. These are this is a good snapshot of some of the conversations <laughs> we would have. Like, okay, we both grew up poor. We both we share a lot of the same trauma. But anyways, we're talking about buying property. So in the United States, we hired a realtor. We saw like three properties. I think we looked at four or five, but a couple of them were just immediately no. Yeah, and then the property that we decided on, um, it was, interestingly, it was a Native American woman and white man. And because of my Native American ancestry and the fact that you're white, we went and we did some ceremonial passing over of the property and talking about it. And because we had a shared understanding of spirituality and what this property meant and listened to her stories and she liked our ethnic makeup, they decided to sell the house to us. So I want to clarify something because you said Native American ancestry and a lot of times I've seen that now used as some kind of blood quantum thing where you're like, I got a DNA test and I'm 2% Native American. Your grandmother no. was born on a reservation. Yes. And the only reason that you don't have tribal connections is that she was so angry about the way she'd been treated that she refused to give anybody information on how to contact them. Yes. And she didn't have a birth certificate. My grandmother didn't have a birth certificate. Right. So I think because her mother died in childbirth. Right. And when, and because, so my great-grandfather was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. He was a slave. And my great-grandmother was 100% Cherokee. And when she decided to marry and have a baby with a former slave, her relatives didn't approve. So when she died in childbirth, they said, you should throw this baby in with her, just bury the baby with her. Mm -hmm. And so my grandmother had been rejected by them and she didn't see any benefit to being on the rolls. Right. And we were fortunate enough that, well, she was fortunate enough that she never needed those resources mm -hmm. because she went to live with the family, she was adopted by the family that had owned her father. Right. And so they raised her as sort of their their penance for having owned her father. They tried to do right by her by giving her a good education and all of that. So she identified more with them right. than she did yeah, with she, the she, Native American side. She played piano really, really well at the, yeah. at the giving concerts level and... Yeah. It's just, you know, had a lot of talents because she had been raised in this way, but yeah. was very angry at the Cherokee side of her. Yeah, and she was also very angry 
being the descendant of a slave. Yeah. So for so in in hearing that story, the wife was like, Wow, I really want you guys living in our home and then also hearing the ways that we wanted to redesign the home. Right. They didn't have the the resources necessary to change the home in the way that we wanted and her children came and visited us after we finished the remodeling the house and wept because it was exactly exactly as her mother would have wanted it to be yes so that to me was a very the house was a very intimate process and we lived in the same cul-de-sac as the so we were the third owners of the house and the first owners lived in our cul-de-sac and they came over and they're like wow this is the best this house has ever looked and it's so much better than when we lived here than when our original family so we sort of had like the whole i don't know genealogy of the house everybody approving of what we did and well and then the next the house next door to us was purchased by people who had originally put in an offer on the house that we bought yes and so it felt really, really intimate. Yeah. And really, really personal. And like we got the house because of who we were. And it was also really fraught with paperwork, which I think is the nature of the US. You, you know, we had to go down and get title insurance and all that kind of thing, even though, you know, we had met all of the previous owners. Yeah. And still necessary to go through the title search and insurance, make sure there's no liens and all well, of that. Well, what are those things? What are what things? The things you're listing off, because some people might not know what title insurance and all of that is. So title insurance is basically insurance that nobody else actually owns the property that you're buying. So if you don't have title insurance, then somebody comes along and says, hey, you weren't able to buy that because the person who sold it to you didn't actually have the right to sell it to you, then it's a big problem. So yeah. if you go through a real estate agent, which realtors are a subset of real estate agents, that's a trademark thing then they ask that you get title insurance. Uh, it's not strictly required, I don't think, if you don't get a mortgage, but it's a good idea anyway. So it protects you in, in case somebody else makes a claim that you would, didn't have the right to purchase that property. And then liens are basically, if somebody borrowed money against the property or didn't pay taxes, then there's a legal right that sticks with the property so you want to make sure that the property is free of liens. Yeah, and there were some issues with the property that we didn't inherit that the former owners had. Right, right. With taxes and such. Which and, we knew about before we completed the yeah. sale. So. And so sale, them selling the house to us and we were able to help them alleviate all of that and they had enough money left over to buy a farm up, up north. They actually went to live on the reservation with, with her extended family. Yeah. So that felt, for me, it, I don't know, it felt like we were doing something good for the owners. Mm -hmm. And it felt like we were doing something good for their children. And we lived in the home and it was just really intimate. It was an intimate and beautiful space. Yes. And we designed it for parties because at the time our son was really young. Um, I think when we bought the house, he was six. No, he was five. He was six when we moved in. He was five when we bought it. Okay. Yeah, because it took us a year. 
Did it take about a year to rebuild yeah, it? Yeah, it took about a year to rebuild yeah. it. So it was really nice that we were able to get him in while, while he was young and he was able to like pick all of his own furnishings, pick what colors he wanted the wall to be. So every wall in our house was a different color. <laughs> yeah. So like our bedroom was turquoise, his bedroom was blue, and the rest of the house was like sienna and something else. So, and then we had like a pink room and we had a lime green room. Uh, the bathroom was like mint green. Yeah. So every room was, was a different color. And it was really, it it probably looked a lot nicer than I'm making it sound. At least for us, it looked a lot nicer. When we sold it, we had all the walls painted white. Yes. But every, we got to pick everything. Well, we had a great contractor. So, we had an amazing contractor. So I'm going to say his name because there's no identifying information. But Chuck, the guy who was con- our contractor, we had interviewed a few different contractors looking for somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, one guy came and his business card was made of shaved wood and stuff. But it was really clear in talking to him that he was on drugs at the time that he was trying to sell yeah. us his services. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I have neurological issues and things. So this was, like, on drugs. Yeah. Um, so we decided not to go with him. Yeah. For, you know, personal reasons. And another guy was really wanting to kind of tear down the entire house and rebuild it and make it a lot bigger and just didn't understand what we wanted with it. Yeah. And just wanted us to spend a lot more money than we wanted to to make it a lot more house than we needed. Yeah. And then Chuck said, and and Chuck was, I think, 65 or something when he bid. No, I think... In his, his, I think he was like 62 or 63. In his 60s. But yeah. our house was one of the last jobs that he did. Yeah. And he said, look, I'm I'm old. I'm not cheap. Uh, I don't negotiate on that, but I do really good work. Yeah, so if you want to haggle on price, just go ahead on and find somebody else. Yeah. And they're like, no, come and talk to us. And he had so many... He sat down and he listened to everything we wanted and how we wanted to live. Mm -hmm. And he gave us some really great advice and input. Like when we wanted, because we had like this, the garage space was just huge. Like you, the, from the garage to the edge of the, the uh, sidewalk, you could fit six cars. Yeah. And so we were able to build another room and put the garage in front of it and still have room for a two-car garage, a two-car garage and two parking spaces in front of the garage. Two by two. So four cars could park in front of the garage and two in the garage. Yeah. And then a room behind that. Yeah. And he gave us the really solid advice of, okay, you don't want that to be a step down because it'll always look like an added-on room. You need to raise it up to the same level. Mm -hmm. And that was beautiful, gorgeous advice that made the house so much more beautiful. It was because I had always grown up with sunken rooms. So, so, you know, that was a thing. And I I didn't know that it would make that much of a difference, but it really did. Yeah. And then he suggested that we do skylights, which was absolutely beautiful. Yep. And that we did a curve. We didn't... so. 
all of the edges in our kitchen were rounded, but the curve, like some people do an L shape, we had a right. curve. And we had a curved cabinet above it with the Lazy Susan in it. And that was because he connected us with a really great stonework people and really great cabinet person that was really just a cabinet fanatic. And he was one of the people at the forefront of the cabinet bed movement. Yeah, we went to the, we went to the cabinet guy's house. Yeah. And all of his furniture was actually cabinetry. Yeah, it's really gorgeous. It was gorgeous. Really, really But it gorgeous. sounded a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> extreme when he described yeah. it. And then it's like, let me show you. Right. Yeah. And so he was at the forefront of that movement, which now it's really popular mm -hmm. in small spaces to have your bed um, in a cabinet. So we were just really, really lucky with all of the craftsmen that, that Chuck was able to connect us with. So again, that led to the intimacy of the experience. Yeah. And then we moved in when they weren't done yet. So we said it took a year, but we moved in before the garage and the room next to the garage were finished. Mm -hmm. And there was a wall sealing it off. Mm -hmm. So we'd see them every day for like three or four months. Yeah. Not every day. We did not work them seven days a week. We'd see them, you know, five days a week. Yeah. And they came to our wedding. They came to our wedding. Because yeah. we bought the house before we were married. Yeah. All the guys who worked on it came to our wedding and... Yeah, and Chuck was a former architect who had decided he liked being a general contractor better, so he knew all this stuff. So it was a really kind of personal experience. Really intimate. Really intimate, really great. And, you know, so that was buying property in the U.S. A yeah. lot of paperwork, a lot of time building it, but uh, kind of a very intimate experience. Yeah. Buying property here in Japan was different. It felt really, I don't know, the the process of finding the home was so different because mm -hmm. we searched online because the floor plans in Japan are pretty standard. Right. And once you understand how to read the graph that they put online, it's actually so much easier and quicker to just search online for what's the floor plan you want, how many rooms do you want, all of those kinds of things. And... I think, okay, this is where luck comes in because the building was brand new. Yeah, it wasn't completed yet. Yeah, so how did you find it? Uh, an acquaintance of ours suggested it. They said, hey, I saw their building building um, near a transportation hub, which was one of our primary requirements. Yeah. Because of my not driving and, well, and we don't have a car and all of that. So we wanted something close to public transport and not way out in the middle of the country. Yeah, because I wanted also to be close to a grocery store. Yes. Yes, so we have a grocery store down the street and a subway station across we the street. We have two grocery stores. Yes. Depending on which direction you walk. Well, we've got three depending on how far you want to walk to. Yeah. So it's it's nice. Um, and lots of convenience stores. and. Yeah, I think that's everywhere in Japan. <laughs> convenience stores in Japan are like Starbucks in, in California. Yeah. I worked at one place in California that... At the intersection, there was a Starbucks on each corner. So there yeah. were four Starbucks at one intersection. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we found out about this place. And in Japan, the seller pays all of the costs. So in the U.S., usually the, the buyer and the seller will split the costs. But in Japan... Which the, costs are you talking about? Uh, the, the, the realtor, the real estate agent, is paid entirely by the seller in Japan. 
Uh-huh. Whereas in the U.S., that's that fee is usually split between the buyer and the seller, and also the closing costs, so the paperwork costs and things. Uh-huh. So that's all paid by the seller in Japan, and so because we bought it while it was being built, that was all paid by the builder, and there was no realtor fee. So Japan is starting to change a little bit, but it used to have a kind of culture of you don't expect a building to last longer than 20 years. Which is strange because there's a lot of old buildings. Yes. Like the building my office is in is what, like 50 years old? No, it's not that old. It was built in 1972. Okay. So, So that makes it 47 this year. So it's it's, it's three still, years away yeah. from fifty years. Come on, <laughs> and it's still standing and functioning. I wouldn't want to live in it because. So the reason I wouldn't want to live in it is that you can only run one, no, two aircons at a time, and it has three rooms. Aircons are air conditioners. Yeah, air conditioning heating units. You can only run two at a time, mm-hmm. and I think you can only run one if you want to cook rice. Right. So you can't run two uh, heating systems or cooling systems plus have a refrigerator running plus cook rice. So to me, I think the building needs to be rewired. Probably. But if they rewire it, and I think they'd have to bring it up to current earthquake standards. Yeah, because it's like seriously not up to code. Right. Now, Japan has a lot of earthquakes. So the earthquake code here is really stringent. Yeah. So new buildings, like the building that we're in now has some kind of device it doesn't have a pendulum like the skyscrapers but it wobbles a lot in earthquakes yeah. and on windy days and on windy days yes it, yeah. it will start to sway it has like a gyrating foundation there's yeah. springs in the foundation yeah so that's different um but this is the first time i've ever lived in a building this tall i don't me know about too. you yeah yeah me too we just learned something new about each other. Interesting, yes. Yeah, so, no, I've never lived in an apartment building that was higher than two stories. Interesting. Yeah. I'm my to think my if I dad did. lived in a high-rise, but I didn't live with them at the time. Right. And so, no, I guess, because, was no, it three stories? It was three stories when okay. we were living together, yeah. Yeah, so that's the highest for me is three stories. Yeah. Because in California, at least in uh, Santa Clara County, it's really uncommon to build buildings higher than three stories because they usually build them wide over yeah, you get lots urban, of land. You get urban than, sprawl. Yeah. In Japan, you get a lot of concentration around train stations. Yeah. And so you can kind of, if you looked at a map where the prices were diff- different colors, a heat map of prices, you could identify where the train stations are just by the prices of the buildings yep so square footage wise and cost wise because i don't want to say how much our our house is exactly but did the house in the u.s cost less per square foot do you think than the house here so square footage wise including the renovations that we made to it the house in the U.S. was double what it what we paid for this, mm-hmm. and it was uh, let's see, two and a half times the size. So yeah. if we doubled our place, we'd have to add another half again to make it the same size. 
yeah. as the one in the U.S. So, yeah, this this place is more expensive on an area basis. Yeah. And but cheaper overall because it's so much smaller. Yeah, and so f- it doesn't have any amenities either. It has parking and that's it. I guess there's like a little table in the lobby, so technically. And there's a maintenance staff that like clean the building. Yeah, so... Any, there are no amenities, like there's no pool, jam, any of that kind of stuff. No. I mean, we live down the street from the ward gym, so if we want to go swimming or whatever we can, there's a public pool. Yeah, but let's be real, we ain't doing none of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rasta's gone a few times and played volleyball or gone swimming and such. Yeah, no, Rasta uses it, but we don't. Yeah. So, for me, I think, I feel like the floor plan that we made the floor plan similar because here's something that I find interesting about both the house and where we live now. I absolutely hate having bedrooms at the front of the house Mm -hmm. and both places have bedrooms at the front of the house. Yes. So, which drives me bananas because you can't ever open your bedroom window or your bedroom window curtains. Not that I do because of my lupus and porphyria. I tend to not like the sun on me. But it's just baffling like why would they put our room right next to our front door now but in the u.s we had a situation where you know we had the the house and then the next street over the house on that street our backyards faced each other yeah and when we put up a fence well within regulation it was like you could only have a six-foot fence and with all of the four houses that touch the fence besides our own permission. Yes, everybody's permission. But the our neighbors, our backyard neighbors, complained that they could no longer watch us. Yes. <laughs> they were just because we had the lattice on top of the fence. Right. And so they were unhappy with the lattice. Yeah, but they were also unhappy when we got curtains. It was like... Yeah. No, it was so I don't your bedroom thing has never made sense to me in a kind of visceral way. But I know that you have it. Yeah. And so with this one, because we really love an open floor plan. The house in the US was an open floor plan, and this place is an open floor plan. And that one of so it could be a four bedroom, but instead of making it a four bedroom, we made it a living room, dining room, kitchen. And there's a wall that we got a sliding partition rather than a solid wall that's fixed. Right. So we have the living room goes straight into the dining room. That's all open space and you can see the kitchen. And we currently have our bedroom in the living room. Because why not? Thank you. (laughs) It's called the living room for a reason. Yeah, because we're living in it. What? And then what would what's known as the tatami room in Japan, which um, there's these mats that are made out of woven grass that are called tatamis. And most places in Japan have one room where those mats are in it, and they're called the tatami room because they function as a tea room. At least historically, they functioned as a tea room and where you would entertain guests and that sort of thing. Our tatami room is actually your office. Yes. And our pantry, we use the tatami closets 
um, sorry, the futon closets. So in Japan, there are closets that if they have sliding doors on them, and if you open the sliding doors, it has one shelf so that you can fold up your futon and put it in there during the day. Yeah, and they're very deep. They're about four and a half feet deep. So Yeah, and we use that for our pantry where we store all our canned goods because the kitchen counter, the uh, cabinet space in the kitchen is just ridiculous. We have, uh, I think we have plenty of cabinets, but they're just really shallow. Yeah, they're very shallow. And so a large plate does not fit in the cabinet. Yeah, so... I'm not upset with our cabinet space because we don't have a lot of dishes, but I do like to eat and store lots of pasta and lots of canned foods. Mm -hmm. So I like to keep so much food in the house that we could whip up a Thanksgiving dinner just based on what was in the house. Just don't expect turkey. Yeah, because that's what we did one year at the house. You're like, okay, let's use all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I really like having canned goods canned goods and pasta and rice and all that. So we use the tatami room to, as our pantry. Before we did that, we had, um, we used some of our bathroom cabinetry as the pantry, and I didn't like that as much. Yeah, our towel closet, our linen closet we used. Yeah, because for... we don't have a lot of linens. No, we don't. And that's something that's changed, because in the U.S., we had tons of linen. Mm -hmm. And here, I think we have, like, a winter set and a summer set, and that's it. Yes. So now that cabinetry is just basically empty. And then we use our old room that was our room for clothing storage. It's filled with nothing but clothes and some workout equipment. And then the room that used to, to be uh, Rasta's room is now your nap room. Yes. The nap room and, leading, and leading, reading room. Yeah. Just kind of, if I need to get away for sensory issues or whatever. Yeah. And also, it can be perfectly climate controlled for you in case I'm wanting a different temperature in the house or if you're needing to cool down or adjust or what have you. Yes. So central air conditioning is not popular in Japan. It's mostly split units. So each room is heated on its own. Yeah. And that makes my office sometimes a little bit uncomfortable because it doesn't have any walls that connect to the outside so three of the walls connect to the inside and one wall connects to our neighbor so there's no way to put an air conditioning unit in that room yeah but usually a fan can take care of that during the summer and a blanket in the winter yeah so we had a real estate agent for both uh purchases we found our real estate agent in the u.s by just driving to a a strip mall you had driven past a strip mall and saw a real estate agent and we just walked in well it's actually different than that because in in japan real estate agents compete for listings but multiple agencies might have it listed yes which in the u.s you have the multiple listing service but in the u.s our real estate agent negotiated with the seller's real estate agent yes in Japan, you're always only dealing with the seller's real estate agent. Yes. And so when we bought this place, we actually were just dealing with the agent for the builder. Mm-hmm. And so they had one model unit completed. So to finish the sale, we actually came to the building and brought the down payment in cash and brought the income the, or hunko, the 
the stamp that has to be registered. Yeah, because you don't sign. Right. You stamp things in Japan, you don't sign them. So we had to get a stamp and get it registered at the ward office, basically City Hall. And then when we stamped that, then they had to put revenue stamps in the contract, which I forget how much they were, but revenue stamps can range from like a dollar to, you know, a thousand dollars or more in cost. Like uh, usually if we get a visa, it's 8,000 yen, which is right now about $75. And they said, well, we had a couple of interesting conversations. They said, well, we're not sure that we can sell this to you because you're foreign. Yeah. And so I had actually prepared for that and had printouts of the relevant laws saying there's not, no restriction on selling to foreigners in Japan. Yes. So it's perfectly legal to be foreign and own property. It's really, really hard to get a mortgage if you are foreign and are not a permanent resident. Yes, and don't have collateral. Right. But we took the money from selling the house in California and used that to buy this place. Yeah. So that wasn't an issue. And then they said, well, there are restrictions associated with being in this building. We want to make sure you're okay with them. They said, you're not allowed to have pets bigger than you can carry. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm really strong and I'd like to have a miniature elephant. And they actually had a discussion and, yeah. and it became clear that they were <laughs> taking me seriously. Taking me seriously. I had to say, I'm sorry, that was that was a joke. Yeah. And they said, Oh, okay. <laughs> like, well, if he can carry it and if it won't grow any bigger than he can carry, right. what do they mean by that? Right. So a lot of people in our building have uh, dogs or cats, but they're all very small. I haven't seen any large dogs in the building, even yeah. though the standard is, can you carry it? So, And one of the buildings we looked at had a dog washing station. Yes. And I thought that was cool. Well, the building we're in now does, too. Where does it ha where's the dog washing station? It's between the stairwell and the locked door that leads in from the parking area. Really? Yes. Oh, I take it back. I guess there are amenities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we obviously don't have any pets. Because I am a terrible, terrible pet owner, and you're a terrible pet owner. So if we had one person who was willing to be responsible for the pet, I think we would have an animal. I never owned a pet. So my family, when I was growing up, had dogs and hamsters, but they were never my responsibility, and I never wanted them. I had a really, really severe asthma. So I know now that I would have been fine with a pet, but the doctors at the time said no indoor pets. So... My brother had a hamster, which I guess didn't count for some reason. Um, but we always had an outdoor dog. Mm. So growing up, I had at one time boa constrictor, um, a bunch of ducks, some rabbits, cats, and uh, two dogs. So I don't remember how many ducks I had because we had two ducks and then a bunch of little ducklings. And we had some rabbits. I think only two rabbits at the time, one boa constrictor, and um, I think three cats and two dogs. And then later on in life, we had seven cats and one dog. So 
for me, most of my life there. So anytime I lived with my mother, I had pets. Mm-hmm. And then when I went into foster care, most foster homes had a, some sort of animal. Right. Like a dog or something. And then in the group homes, there weren't any pets. And then when I moved out and lived on my own, I didn't have any pets. And then I had one relationship that lasted for five years and we had a cat. We yeah. Had three cats at the time. But I wasn't, at no point in time was I ever responsible for any of the animals. I guess the place that I live, I lived in a bunch of different people's houses with their permission, but it kind of fostered out informally through through the church. And I think the place I usually stayed had three cats. And then I briefly lived with somebody who had four ferrets. I don't recommend living with ferrets. And I once had a, a fish. Well, my girlfriend at the time had a fish. Mm. So I feel like everybody, I've, other people I've lived with had animals and I benefited from those animals. I've only ever had one pet that I considered my own and that was a cat, but I wasn't responsible for the litter right. or any of that because I was really young at the time. So I wasn't into like actually caring for animals. I like loving on animals and petting them and enjoying them, but I don't like changing litter boxes or walking a dog or any of that. Well, it's interesting looking at that, thinking about how much of our life is structured around having it be possible for there to be days where neither of us can function. Yeah. From things like not owning a pet to living near public transport to having a pantry full of things that could be kind of instant food. So, to me, I felt like both times the buying both places were really straightforward. I think that we were fortunate in that we really organized ourselves before, and we were also fortunate that we had the resources. Yeah. And I think having the resources made it fairly stress-free both times. Yeah, it did. And the laws, too. I know that if we're in a different country, I know Singapore doesn't allow foreigners to own property in Which Th- is one of the reasons why we don't live in Singapore. Yeah, in Thailand, you can't own more than half of property, except. And in I, Mexico, you can't own foreigners can't own property. Yeah, so I, I know that Japan is not completely standard, but you can buy property as a foreigner here. So, and Nagoya doesn't have the kind of real estate bubbles that Tokyo goes through. So the price of our apartment estimated price has been pretty much constant for the last yeah. 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, that was buying property in the U.S. It feels like more like the kind of property we owned in the U.S. and the kind of property that we owned. Well, we also had some fun stories. <laughs> yes. So thank you for tuning in and listening to this week's ramble. <laughs> yeah, come back again to hear more pointless stories and digressions. Yes. <laughs> bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can keep the conversation going on our website at themusicsinjapan.com. That's the music spelled M-U-S-I-C-K-S. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at the Musics on both. And if you'd like to support us, please visit our website to sign up for our newsletter, join a Patreon tier, or send us a one-time donation through PayPal or Ko-fi. We hope you'll listen again next week. Bye.